Hi, everybody. Um, welcome to the LSE. Uh, my name's Charlie Beckett. I run uh, the media think tank here. It's called Polis. Um, and uh, I'm really pleased um, to, ha to, to have our speaker here tonight because uh, one of the things we look at in Polis is well, a couple of things that are relevant to tonight. One is uh, media change, uh, the way that uh, uh, news media technology is changing and of course that's really impacted on on photojournalism that you know the fact that you've all got these uh, mobile phone cameras and that you can probably all afford to buy wonderful gear and go and stick your photos up on Flickr is really changing uh, everything and it's also the other bit that we look at a lot is uh, the representation of power and those people who don't have power as well so how do po uh, politicians communicate <coughs> using imagery? And how do we understand what happens in the world uh, in places like Haiti or Japan uh, through the images that we see? So it's wonderful to have somebody who really cares about those issues and whose work uh, is a sort of testimony and, in a sense, a kind of case study of the things that we've been looking at at, at, at Polis. Uh, Plantin Anthony is a great example of a classic photographer who takes his craft uh, to places literally um, and metaphorically that perhaps the amateur, so-called, can't always get, uh, but is very much interested in the way that that craft uh, is changing. Uh, the most recent book, The Portraits of Power, um, remind me very much of the sort of great political uh, portrait painters of the past, people even like Dura and Gainsborough, um, who have that uncanny ability to uh, use uh, imagery to see into not only people's personality but even their ideology. And so in a world uh, where there are millions of images constantly being created and consumed every hour, uh, his work really does stand out and we're really pri privileged tonight to have a chance to have a look at his work and share his thoughts. So please welcome Platon. It's an honour to be here. I'm a long way from home. Um, but the real ex reason I'm excited to be here is because every Friday night when I was at St. Martin's 22 years ago, we used to creep into the LSE bar because you got free beer or cheap beer. And we used to have a big party every Friday. So it's so nice to return to good times. But you're all a lot more sober than the crowd I used to talk to when I used to come to the LSE. All right. Let's sort out these buttons here. So, shall we start the action? All right, here we go. Um, so this is the face of rise to power. Uh, I photographed, the first time I worked with Obama, uh, he was, it was during his election campaign. And this was in his uh, office in Chicago. And I remember on his desk, there was a self-help book that he was reading at the time, a big one. And uh, it was all about how to negotiate with an opponent, uh, how to find a good result without uh, a conflict. And I think that's kind of very revealing of who uh, the Obama sort of character became. And I remember saying to him, um, you know, um, my mum adores you. And I said, uh, she really hopes you make it to the White House. So he leaned forward and he said, tell your mama I said hi. 
So um, he got in, and uh, I was very privileged to be invited to the White House uh, at the beginning of his presidency to do the first presidential portrait of the First Lady, uh, Michelle Obama. So it's quite a historic event, as you understand, because it's the first moment she's really acknowledged uh, on film as our new First Lady. And it was a big, pompous, uh, celebratory occasion uh, in a room kind of the size of this with chandeliers. And um, we all got very excited. She was surrounded by her entourage of hair and makeup people and advisors. And at the point I took this picture, um, I got overwhelmed, as I often do. And, and I said, right, my love, I want your soul. Give it to me. So all her advisors, I heard a, a cup drop on the floor, I heard, I, you know, um, <laughs> but her eyebrow raised, and it was a bit like, oh, um, but she gave me something special, and then of course being the Englishman that I am, and we pride ourselves on some level of tact in this country, I realized what I'd said, so I said, I'm so sorry, what have I just done? I said, firstly, I called you my love which is outrageous, you're our first lady. Uh, and, and I said, secondly, I demanded your soul. So I said, as a humble Englishman, I totally apologize for my slip up. And then she kissed me on the cheek and said to me, Platon, when all is said and done, I'm just Michelle. Very beautiful. On the other hand. <coughs> so um, this was for a cover of an American magazine and uh, I did this picture during Bush uh, W, his son's reign. I was going to say reign of terror, but that's not. Um, so uh, we did this picture, and it was... Uh, I remember saying to him, I love Winston Churchill. And I knew he was a fan. Obviously, he would be. So uh, I said, uh, I want to pay tribute to Winston. And at the time, Bush was standing like this, looking quite mean. So he said, I, I love that idea. So I said, well, I think of the Second World War victory and the Victory V. So I said, how about giving me a Victory V for Winston Churchill? So before he realized what he'd done, he just took his hand and he did that. I think I got one frame before all his advisors shut it down. <laughs> so this ran on the cover, and we were all very nervous to see what the, his son's administration would think about it. And the day it came out, I got an email from one of the chief uh, advisors in the White House and I'd like to read it to you, if I may. <laughs> All right, so it said, uh, Dear Platon, congratulations on a cover with cross-generational appeal. George Bush's two upraised fingers may represent a victory sign or a peace sign, depending on which side of World War II the reader was born. However, my three-year-old daughter had a different take. Upon glimpsing the cover of the magazine from her seat at the front of the grocery cart, she exclaimed happily, Daddy, that man sings our bunny song. <laughs> Everyone's got a different take. Right. This is his favorite chair. Okay. You, you want to get serious? Let's get serious. Um, I was told he's the guy you want to have a beer with. That's the, that's the image he had in America. So um, he's the last person to sit for my book that's just out. And I'd waited 10 years to get him. So he's notoriously shy of photographers. 
I was very lucky to get the opportunity. So um, I went to Texas to do it in his office. And uh, as soon as he walked in the room, I knew I'm going to have one of the hardest shoots of my life. The first thing he did was walk right up to me and pointed very aggressively. His finger was like a gun going through my chest. And he said, you better be photographing a guy who's happy and not some kind of snarler. (laughs) Now, (laughs) when the most powerful or the former most powerful man in the world kind of threatens you like that, I don't scare easy folks, all right? I I have a healthy disregard for power, but this guy freaked me out. So he was paranoid that I'm some kind of representative of the left-wing media and that I'm out to paint him as a fallen president, a man who looks back on his legacy with great regret or something. Um, So he then started uh, expressing the mask of someone covering up fear. And that's what this is. Uh, if you, you have to look closely at it because he's a very skilled politician uh, and he, all politicians are good at the mask but you look at that one eye that's slightly squinting and you see that through that eye it's not totally convincing that he's happy under the surface he's quite quite paranoid okay so let's move on all right <clears throat> so I got into a lot of trouble for this Um, This was my first presidential portrait, and it should have been my last. Um, I'd been in New York maybe a year and a half, and uh, I got a call from Esquire magazine in in America, and they said, we've got the biggest job you can ever imagine for you. They said, you're not our first choice, you're our fourth, but the other guys weren't available. Uh, They said, we want you to do Bill Clinton's last official portrait as president, So it was a big official deal. And um, whatever you do, don't use that lens, they said to me. We want a nice headshot, very dignified. They said, you've got eight minutes. And um, they closed down a 200-room hotel to do this picture. When you come into contact with the, the White House, you know, the presidency in America, it's so overwhelming, the scale, the power of it. So I went there. I set up with my team of assistants in this room. There were snipers on the roof. There were bomb disposal people taking up all the floorboards everywhere. They cleared the whole hotel just to do the picture. Suddenly out of the window we heard police sirens and people cheering and I looked out the window and I saw you know, 20 or 30 cars arrive, which is his motorcade and my heart started racing folks. I remember I didn't yet have a proper suit. So the only suit I was wearing was my dad's uh, mod dogtooth suit from 1964, the one he was married in, and it was frayed at the edges, and so I wasn't really equipped to do this shoot. Um, in the room, there was um, a couple of Secret Service guys watching every move we made, and on their lapel, they have these walkie-talkies, right? And you sometimes hear the progress from other people talking on their walkie-talkies coming out of the little loudspeaker. So the first thing I heard was, the president is in the building. (laughs) And then you hear, the president is having a Diet Coke break. (laughs) The president has finished his Diet Coke break. He will be in in 10 seconds. 10, 9, (laughs) 8. By the time he walks in, 
I swear to God, there were angels singing, there were doves flying from it. I mean, the build-up is insane. It was like meeting Fat Elvis in a white suit. Um, so he, he sort of waddled in, sat down, and he, he has this charisma, folks, that, I mean, I've met a lot of fascinating people, but this guy has something that is just unstoppable. So um, I'd spent seven and a half minutes doing the nice, dignified headshots. And then I had that weird, dark moment, which is quite lonely, when I say to myself, come on, man, you owe it to yourself to do the picture you're supposed to do. You're never going to be in front of another world leader again anyway, so what the hell? <laughs> so um, I turned around to my assistants and I said, lads, can you pass me the portrait lens, please? And it's our code word. Uh, so they looked at me with horror because they knew I was breaking every rule in the book by asking for it. So I put it on. By this point, I'd lost him. He was surrounded by all his aides. Uh, people were making notes on everything he said, and, and I needed to get his attention. So I yelled out at the top of my voice, Mr. President, will you show me the love? Another moment, a glass dropped on the floor. Uh, I'm sure someone fainted. Um, a couple of advisors said, no, whoa, there. We've just got over Monica Lewinsky. We're not dealing with love. And then Clinton says, shut up, shut up. I know what he means. <laughs> he put his hands on his knees and he gave me the Clinton magic. And um, I was a new generation of portrait photographers at the time. And he was clearly a new generation of presidents. So what we made was actually a gift to my generation because we never had JFK, Martin Luther King. This guy was kind of like a rock and roll president and I wanted my generation to have an icon so that we could pin it to our walls. Um, so anyway, I handed it in to Esquire uh, and I slipped this picture in at the bottom of the pile and thought nothing else of it. And then uh, I was waiting for it to come out about two months later, it still hadn't come out yet, uh, I came home from a hard day's work in New York and my wife and I were uh, watching TV and we had ordered a Chinese takeaway. So I just had some uh, noodles just about going into my mouth with some chopsticks and Larry King, you know Larry King? He came on TV and he said, tonight we're talking about this. And he held up my picture on the cover of an advanced copy of Esquire. They ran it on the cover. And he said, this is disgusting. This is an outrage that we show our president in this vile, lurid manner. And he said, I've invited Bob Woodward, who's the guy that brought down Nixon, folks, a uh, great journalist, to analyze the picture. So this great Bob Woodward, if he brings down Nixon, what's he going to do to me? So he said, um, I know how this works, Larry. He said, uh, I've been in the media a long, long time. He said, the photographer planned everything. He said, the hands are big to grope you with. He said, the face is smiling to say, I got away with the biggest scandal in American history. He said, his legs are splayed to present his manhood. And the tie is an arrow. So... The noodles were by now falling out of my open mouth and I turned around to my wife and I said, there goes my green card application. <laughs> so this is another president. So I did get another chance. Um, and he came in looking more like a cowboy than a president. So I said to him, you look like James Dean. He said, thanks, I love James Dean. So I said, well, can you do me a James Dean impersonation? 
So he put his hands in his pockets, just like James Dean in Giant, and uh, he took on the James Dean persona. Okay. All right, run and hide, folks, run and hide. Um, I need a drink for this one. <laughs> I normally drink whiskey when I'm working, but they gave me water tonight. I think my drinking days at the LSE are over. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, I was invited to Moscow to do this picture. He won this prestigious uh, position of being Person of the Year for Time magazine, uh, which is a big deal. It's a big institution in America. And they asked me to do the picture. Uh, the Kremlin's official line was, they wrote a letter to us saying, uh, the talented Mr. Platon is very welcome to come to Russia, but he can only photograph the interview, because all the directors of time are going to do a big interview with him. But he cannot do a proper portrait. Our president has never sat for a formal portrait uh, in his life, and he doesn't want to begin now. We think of um, uh, the meat is the interview. The photography is the side dish of vegetables. Okay, so I went there uh, with no formal permission uh, to do a shoot, a portrait shoot. And I was kept in a room, uh, in a hotel room for about five or six days, not knowing when they're going to call me. Suddenly I got the call saying, tomorrow morning a black BMW from the Kremlin will pick you up. They didn't tell me where I was going. So um, the next morning I put on my, uh, my suit. I had a proper suit by this stage. And uh, I was driven an hour and a half outside Moscow, not to the Kremlin as I thought I would, but to his private dasha, which is his private residence in a dark, bleak, gothic Russian forest. Uh, snow up to here. I arrived and there was a three-story high security wall covered in snipers. As I got out of the car, uh, there were orange dots on me. Uh, I was led in at gunpoint and into a strange room uh, where I was held for eight and a half hours and I was given Kremlin tea and KGB biscuits. Um, then they suddenly said, okay, you've got five minutes to set up before the interview begins. So I rushed into this very historic room, about twice as long as this, very narrow, and it's the room which is his office, but it's also where they dissolved the Soviet Union. So it's a very historic place. And um, uh, I, I didn't ask anybody, I just started setting up my portrait. No one really understood what I was doing anyway. Now, um, I shouldn't really say this, because I'm going to get in trouble with the Kremlin, but um, I'm going to tell you it anyway. Uh, I needed power for my light, and there was only one plug socket which was next to his desk, but there was a plug in it. So, so I went to pull it out so I could put my light in, and three security guards jumped on me shouting, Niet, Niet. Um, they, they, they pointed to the wire, and it led onto his desk into the back of a red phone in a glass case with a button on it. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so I found another plug socket and uh, I continued to set up. Um, he walked in and he did the interview and it was a very tough interview. He had a translating earpiece uh, so it became a weird barrier for the interviewers and he was quite, he was quite tough on them. At the end of the interview I'd snapped a bit on my likers uh, but I didn't really have what I wanted. The head of Time magazine stood up 
and he said, Mr. Putin, we want to thank you for giving us your very valuable time. But he said, with the honor of being America's person of the year in Time magazine comes an obligation. And he said, we have flown the world's greatest photographer here to do your picture. He's standing over there and his name is Mr. Platon. So Putin looked at me. Now, let me explain something here, folks. I'd had a rough time, all right? I'd been beaten down by the Kremlin for a week. And uh, my nerves were completely shattered. And I hadn't eaten properly and I was tired. Uh, And to hear the boss of Time magazine say something so lovely about me, even though it was not quite true, um, I burst into tears. (laughs) So as Putin looked at me, he didn't didn't see a threat. He saw a a shriveling, pathetic man with with, uh, his nose dribbling into his mouth, and I was wiping my eyes. My, knee, my legs up to my knees were wet from the snow because I didn't have proper boots as I got into the building. Uh, I looked a mess. And he said, I'll do it. Because I think he felt sorry for me. Uh, so uh, he threw everyone from time, all his advisors, out of the room. And it was me and Putin. And he said to me, uh, let's talk. So I said, well, Mr. President, as I gathered my uh, nerves, I said, I have a question to ask you. Um, I'm a massive Beatles fan. Are you? And, and he sort of looked at, you know, he took the earpiece off and suddenly he started speaking perfect English. He said, I love the Beatles. I said, you're kidding me. As I calmed my nerves, I said, uh, what's your favorite Beatles song then? And he said, yesterday. I said, a bit cheesy, but it's okay. Um, now, suddenly, he wasn't the president, and I wasn't a pathetic man. We were just equal for a few moments because of the Beatles. And it allowed me to get an inch and a half away from his nose and capture the sparkle of power that's in his eyes. And there's no way I would have got that close unless I'd mentioned the Beatles. And then he played for me. And this is him not acting out the role because this is actually him but I was there by now and he let me in and still today he hasn't posed for another portrait I don't really blame him but I think he liked the picture this is one for the ladies this is David Beckham now there's so much interesting stuff to tell you folks about this shoot it was totally bizarre but I had to sign four non-disclosure agreements so I can't say anything about it so sorry (laughs) just have to look at his muscles Okay, this is an early shoot of mine um, in America. I was sent to America by John Kennedy Jr., JFK's son, who started a political magazine. And uh, he wanted someone to photograph fame and power from the inside, which is the way he grew up inside it. To him, his father wasn't the president, it was just his father. So my kind of slightly irreverent um, uh, closeness with people resonated with him, and he gave me all my first breaks. So as I was doing this picture, Kirk Douglas uh, had fairly recently had a stroke, and you can see his mouth is slightly slanted. Um, But I looked in his eyes and I said, my God, Mr. Douglas, I can't believe I'm photographing the man that played Spartacus. And he said, I didn't play Spartacus, I am Spartacus. Then I saw his lovely wife fluttering around in the kitchen. This was in his house. So I said, would you like to join us for a picture, Anne? 
And she's, as any lady would, oh, my hair's not right, you know, I don't know what to do in the picture. So I said, it's easy, just show me how you feel about the man that you love. So she knew what to do. She just cuddled him from behind. And he stopped being Spartacus and became a man who's totally in love. And if you look at his face, I find it totally devastating. On the other hand, <laughs> so I said to him, uh, this is Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I said to him, uh, I don't know what I'm supposed to call you. Uh, you've had so many illustrious careers. You've been Mr. Universe, um, Mr. Uh, you've been Governor, you've been the Terminator, so what do I call you? And he said, oh, Platon, I don't care. Call me Schwarze or Schnitzel, I don't care. <laughs> so we did the entire shoot under the name of Schnitzel. <laughs> then, after the tragic death of JFK Jr., I was invited to the Kennedy compound, uh, which was a very... Uh, privileged, uh, spiritual thing to do, um, and to do this portrait of Teddy, Teddy Kennedy. And uh, I remember talking about his nephew, who he was very close to, and you can see the kind of sadness of uh, his troubled family history in his face. And the weird thing is that uh, when Teddy himself passed away, um, I gave this picture to Time magazine to use as a tribute on the cover of Time. So I would never would have thought when I did this picture that it's going to be used as a tribute in his death. All right, so this is um, uh, Willie Nelson. Uh, I know we're all English here, but in America he's a big institution, a big famous country and western star. And in America, this really resonated. This was a huge hit in America, this picture. Um, the, the reality is they, they find it very spiritual with his eyes closed and he's cuddling his guitar. The reality is he was so stoned um, that he kept falling asleep. And, uh, uh, and so I needed the guitar to prop his back up. And as he held on to it, he, he nodded off again, and, and I took this picture. And it, you know, so that's the reality behind the scenes. <laughs> Prince. I never thought I would get Prince. Okay? It's one of those magical uh, moments. Um, he's very hard to get. Now, I don't think he walks on the ground. I think he kind of glides. Okay? Um, there's something about him. And I said to him, Prince, can you slip me the answer? He said, I have the answer. I said, I thought you might. He said, come with me. So at the end of the shoot, he pulled me aside, put his arm around me, and he put his hand inside his jacket pocket, pulled out something, put it in my hand, and as if by magic, disappeared. So I looked down, and it was Jehovah Witness pamphlet. So if any of you have been harassed by Jehovah Witnesses, I've been harassed by Prince. It's pretty cool. So I was very honored uh, after the Obama pictures in Time magazine, which some say helped sway the election, um, I was invited to his inauguration and then invited to the inaugural ball, which is a big, big party, big tradition. Uh, you may remember JFK's inaugural uh, ball that Frank Sinatra produced in the 60s with the Rat Pack and everything. So this was uh, a new generation. And uh, I set up a studio at the inaugural ball and invited all the guests to come in and sit for me. So this was Stevie Wonder. 
And he was playing that night, I think. His band played. So he was very excited that it was a new generation entering in the power of the White House. Incredible moment. This guy was weird. Um, the great Christopher Walken, one of my favorite actors. So he's the only celebrity to arrive an hour early. Uh, he arrived wearing uh, black elasticated trousers pulled up to here. And uh, he had uh, a black jacket with some food smeared on the lapels. And uh, he looked like he'd been let out of a lunatic asylum. So he went straight into the kitchen in my New York studio and started opening the cupboards. So I said to him, uh, hello, Mr. Walken. I'm so thrilled to meet you, man. I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, and I said, are you hungry or something? Are you looking for food? And as he was looking, he, he just turned to me and he said, no. <laughs> so I said, well, is there anything I can get you? Because you look like you're looking for something. He went, shh. And he carried on looking in the closet. So I thought, leave him to settle. So I finished setting up the lights, and then I was ready. I called him over. He sat down, and I said, right, Mr. Walken, look at the camera. He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, that's not how we do this. He said, this is how we're going to do this. He said, I look away. You say, Chris. I look at the camera, and you take a picture. And then I look away again. You say, Chris. And I look at the camera, and you take a picture. So we did it for an hour. And that's how I got this picture. So as he was leaving... I remember him walking out the studio door, so I shouted out, Mr. Walken, have you got any advice for living? He said, oh yes. He said, um, always wear a safety belt, because it sure helps if you drink. <laughs> it's the best advice I've ever had. All right, this is for the men in the room. Uh, this is arguably one of the sexiest women on the planet. Her name is Monica Bellucci. She's an Italian, half French, half Italian, uh, great actress, beautiful woman. So I was asked to photograph her in L.A. in Hollywood. And uh, as we all know, as English men here, when we're sexually intimidated, we find ourselves nervously talking about the weather. <laughs> so I walked into her dressing room, and there she was. And she knew I was t scared. She just felt it. So um, she started to undress in front of me to get into her next outfit for the shoot. And I was having an internal chaotic debate. What do I do? Do I act cool and stay in the room and act like I'm not bothered? She hasn't asked me to leave. Maybe I should be, because I'm half Greek, maybe I should be Greek and just be Mediterranean and say, this is cool, I can stay. Or do I be English and say, oh, excuse me, my dear, I'm sorry, I should leave the room and give you your privacy. So I decided to be Mediterranean. <laughs> So she took off her blouse, she took off her jeans. Uh, by now I was talking about the weather in slightly manic <laughs> phrasing. She, she took off her bra, she took off her underwear. She was completely naked. But then it got worse. Uh, the dress she wanted to wear, this dress, uh, was made of very tight rubber. The only way to get in it was to get her two beautiful uh, female assistants, who were also from Italy, I think, uh, to put baby oil all over her body <laughs> and slide her into it. So one hip went in, the next hip, then one boob, then the other boob. By the time she was ready, I, it was all over. I was a mess. <laughs> we did the shoot, and at the end of the shoot, I said to her, Monica, it's been a very emotional day for me. Um, <laughs> I would love to have my picture taken with you on this box for my scrapbook. So she said, of course, darling. 
So um, I sat next to her and she put her arm around me and got a bit too close. So I said, Monica, don't get too close to me because I'm a married man and you're making me a bit hot under the collar. And she said, don't worry, darling. And I still remember her, her breath on my neck. Um, she said, don't worry, darling, I'm married too. <laughs> so I never hang out with celebrities, okay? There's two very important reasons. The first reason is I don't want any relationships to contaminate my capacity to take an honest picture. But the most important reason I never hang out with celebrities is because no one has ever asked me. So um, they, um, they never call me afterwards. I mean, I, I have some important relationships with governments, but celebrities, no. So um, one day, after I photographed uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, he called up the studio when the pictures came out. And my assistant answered the phone, and he went totally white with nerves. And he turned around to me, and he said, someone who wants to talk to you on the phone. So I said, well, who is it? He said, it's Rocky. So I thought, oh God, I'm in trouble. So I took the call and um, uh, I said, hello. And he said, hey, Platon, you truly have the eye of a tiger. <laughs> this is the great Alexander McQueen, who recently passed away. This was the day before his first fashion show. Uh, he went to the same art college as I did. Uh, we didn't know each other well, but uh, I, I just felt there's something about this kid that is poised to take over the world. He just had something so special. And I remember he interrupted the shoot to uh, shave his eyebrow like this uh, because he just thought of it as we were doing it. And then he tilted his head sideways so the eyebrow would be more prevalent. Notice he's wearing a Burberry shirt 15 years before Burberry became really cool again. Tracy Emin, the lady of the hour. Um, there's a look of total defiance in her face, but it's also the look of fear of life, and she has that in her art. Okay, John McCain, the man who was nearly president. So I know him. I've worked with him maybe uh, for 10 years. Uh, he calls me boy. Uh, and I happen to be in his limo uh, the moment he made the first formal call announcing he's running for president. So it's a historic moment when you see someone make that call. So he was on his cell phone, he said to someone important, I'm doing it, let's announce the campaign in an hour's time. So he hung up, he turned around to me and he said, boy, I'm running for president. I said, cool. <laughs> he said, we need to celebrate. I said, I love celebrating. So he said, do you like ABBA? So I said, I love ABBA. So he said, what about Dancing Queen? I said, it's a, it's a great song. He said, that's my favorite song. So he, he instructed his limo driver to put on Dancing Queen. And then he cranked up the volume. And me and John McCain were dancing to Dancing Queen in the back of his limo. That's show business, folks. One of my all-time heroes. I put in a few of these because, uh, for the English crowd. Because no one in America knows who Ronnie Barker is. But he's one of my all-time heroes. This is Lionel Blair. Remember Lionel Blair? Uh, he told me his biggest ambition was to play a villain in a James Bond movie and never got the breaks. Everyone thinks he's a really sweet guy and no, no one thinks he's capable of doing it. So I told him to act out if he was a villain in a James Bond movie, what would he do? And this is him acting it out. Okay. Uh, so I said to him, right, look at the camera, Donald Trump. Look at the camera. And he said, no, 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 no. This is my best side. 
So he gave me that sexy, perted lip. And then I said to him, Mr. Trump, what's up with the hair? Uh, and he, said, he lifted it and pulled it. And he said, it's real. I don't know why everyone goes on about my hair. It's real. And it was real. But I still don't know which way it works. I can't work it out. <laughs> Martin Scorsese, another hero of mine. I'm not going to talk about this woman. She broke up the Beatles. Uh, this is the great Al Hirschfeld. Um, <clears throat> he's America's greatest cartoonist and illustrator. He was 99 years old when I took this picture. And to show how old he was, he was best friends with Charlie Chaplin in the 20s and 30s. So suddenly, this is his desk in New York, and his cat jumped on the desk and stared me out and became like one of his cartoons. So as I did this picture, I said to him, Mr. Hirschfeld, you're a legend. You're 99 years old. I said, if you had one wish, what would it be? And he said, ah, to be 90 again. <laughs> um, the tragedy is he died two weeks later, and he never made it to 100. And this is the last picture of him. Al Pacino. So I never thought I'd get The Godfather. And I was told, whatever you do, don't talk about The Godfather. So I did. And I said, Al, at the end of Godfather Part 2, man, that scene changed my life. When you're powerful and the leaves are rustling on the ground and the camera pans in on your face. I said, that's just... And I started getting emotional. And he went, shh. And he became Don Corleone just for this picture. A man with great hair, the great Boris, your Lord Mayor. So he was nice. He was okay. I did this in Davos in January. So I thought I'd put it in to put a smile on your face. Uh, Bono. So uh, I said to him, Bono, you're so successful. You must have failed. And I'm always frightened of failure. How should we cope with it? He said, I know how to cope with failure. He said, um, what you have to do in life is stick your head above the parapet and wait for the custard pies to be thrown. You should never hide. And when you get smacked in the face by a custard pie, taste it. It tastes pretty good. <laughs> P. Diddy. He walks around in New York uh, with, uh, I think, at least one film crew filming every second of his life for a very historical, important archive. Um, and suddenly the grill in his teeth slipped out and it, it went sideways, and I thought, it's perfect. It's the re uh, sort of revealing show business, that it's not real. And uh, so I got this picture by mistake. This is Karl Rove, who was uh, George Bush's, George W. Bush's brain. Uh, they call him his, his chief advisor. So I did this in the White House during the W. Bush uh, reign of power. And uh, I said to him, um, I'm a, this is a while back, I said, I'm a, I'm a young guy trying to make it in America. I'm not young anymore, folks. Uh, and I said, um, you've made it in America. Like, no, no other advisor's ever made it. You're a very powerful man. I said, uh, have you got any advice on making it in America? He said, listen, Sonny, if you're photographing me, you don't need any advice. You've already made it. So I said to uh, Henry Kissinger, very recently, I asked him to sit for me because he actually gave me the idea to photograph uh, all our world leaders. He was talking about a new global dynamic where we all have to start working together. We can't solve our global problems in isolation. And that gave me the spark 
of the idea to photograph every world leader under the planet, if possible. So I thought he looked amazing. And I said to him, um, Mr. Kissinger, actually it's Dr. Kissinger now, Dr. Kissinger, you look so cool. And he said, oh, Platon, you're the greatest con artist I ever met. <laughs> All right. Colonel Gaddafi, the man of the hour. Um, all right, where do we begin? So, I needed access to power. I already had a handful of people. I had Obama, I had Putin, and a few other big guys. But uh, there's no way I could travel the world individually to different countries and get this. So, I talked to um, Ban Ki-moon, the Secretary General of the United Nations. And I persuaded him to support me in this project that I wanted to photograph all our world leaders up close and personal because they're always shrouded in a veil of propaganda and hype. Uh, it's about time we saw an essence of the truth. So uh, he got behind the idea and gave me historic access to the UN. I got the highest level security pass any civilian has ever had, essentially allowing me to mingle freely with every world leader at the General Assembly every September. So I set up my studio a few feet away from the podium where each world leader speaks to the General Assembly, just behind the wall of marble that you see on TV. Um, now, Gaddafi chose the worst moment to sit for me. Obama was in the middle of his first speech as President of the United States. And he was at this point regarded as a kind of political messiah. Uh, Backstage where I was, I was surrounded by sniffer dogs, all the White House security guys, um, Rahm Emanuel, Axelrod, all his advisors, even Hillary was there. It was a small confined space. And suddenly down the other end of the corridor, walking towards us, was a giant crowd swell of about, I don't know how many are in this room, but it was about the same amount of people as you. Probably 200 people. In the middle of the crowd, about there, you sir, uh, marched Gaddafi in slow motion defiance. He was surrounded by all, all these female bodyguards dressed head to foot in military clothing. It was a scene from James Bond. He had this weird pork pie hat that tamed his wild hair and all this incredible, uh, these chocolate robes. The regalia was unbelievable. Uh, he marched right up to me and I'm sure he sat for me uh, knowing that it's under the nose of the White House. And the Secret Service guys were freaking out because Obama was going to finish his speech any minute and march out to the biggest crowd of uh, you know, supporters of Gaddafi. This is the worst protocol nightmare you can imagine. So anyway, um, he did the picture and defiance permeates every ounce of grain in this photograph. Uh, people say to me, is he mad? Is he crazy? He may well be. Uh, I, I, he could also be the smartest person in the room. What I know is that he's not to be underestimated. I was an inch and a half from his nose, and I could feel his breath on my hand, and it still gives me the chills. Okay, so then momentum began. I got a handful of world leaders, and after a while it became a private club. Why haven't I been asked to take, have my picture taken? So-and-so has done it, so-and-so has done it, I want to do it. And before long, there was a line of world leaders queuing up like a bus, chatting to each other while I finished the, the person in, uh, waiting to have their... It was the most bizarre experience of my life. 
So Netanyahu approached me and he put his hand on my shoulder and looked directly into my eyes and he said, Platon, make me look good. <laughs> Abbas, the Palestinian leader, had a totally different atmosphere. Uh, he didn't have the drive and confidence, uh, it seems, of Netanyahu. He, it looked to me like he had the world on his shoulders and he's just trying to make an impossible situation work. Uh, you can see it in his eyes. All right, this was a crazy moment. Um, so, Ahmadinejad. Again, I was backstage. Uh, he was, he'd just made one of the most controversial speeches ever made at the United Nations. You may remember it was two years ago. It was shown on the news. In fact, half the, uh, or many of the world leaders who were in the audience walked out in protest. But I didn't know this because I was backstage. I was surrounded by all his waiting, adoring fans. So I was operating in a bubble. As he came backstage, he stepped down a few steps. They all swarmed all around him, patting his back, asking for signatures, saying what an incredible speech that was. Uh, and I was losing him. And again, it was a crowd a bit less than this room, maybe 150 people. And he was right bang in the middle. So I thought, I've got to get this moment. I elbowed my way into the crowd, grabbed both his hands, looked into his eyes, and I said, come with me, I will take your picture. I pulled his hands gently, and the miracle is that he actually followed me. And as we pigeon-stepped perhaps 20 feet from where I am to that wall, where my studio setup was, the crowd moved with us, so it was like pulling 150 people. As he sat for me, he was now performing in front of this adoring crowd, and he got totally embarrassed because he's never been photographed up close and personal in this way. And it created this weird, rather sinister leer in his eyes. This is Talabani uh, of Iraq, president of Iraq. Zadari of Pakistan. Uh, Medvedev, the new Russian um, president. So by now, I passed the Kremlin audition. And uh, the treatment I got at the United Nations with uh, Medvedev or Medvedev was totally different. I got the red carpet treatment this time. Uh, they cornered off an entire area so the president and me could have our privacy together. And I said to him, um, Mr. President, can I ask you something? He said, yes. So I said, um, I've been to Russia a few times now. And I love Moscow. I have a very special relationship with the place. I said, I've never seen so many beautiful women in a city in my life. I don't understand how that happened. But everywhere you go, you just see the most gorgeous women. What is that about? And he said, Mr. Platon, I don't know, but I have to agree with you. <laughs> okay. This is Mugabe. Um, one of the most chilling moments in my life. He had the weirdest skin. It looked like it had been ironed onto his flesh. And his eyes have this weird cyan blue crystal chill. Um, as he walked away after the picture, another head of state arrived to have their picture taken. And uh, they refused to sit on the same chair. And I said, what's wrong with the chair? He said, there's blood on it. So it was a very chilling reminder of the challenges we face today. So I said to Tony Blair, um, the day you were elected, I was an art student and I cried tears of joy because you were the first politician that my generation understood or believed in or trusted. 
You seemed more humble. You seemed to speak as one of us. And I don't think anyone has said anything like this to Blair in a long, long time. And you can see the weird look in his eyes. Um, The weird thing is that I never talked about uh, his legacy. That was the unmentioned truth. And I can't help feeling, if you look at his face, is he thinking, but did I live up to those expectations? And it made me think about politics in general. Does anyone ever live up to their expectations? So, Gordon Brown. I really like Gordon Brown. Uh, The media think he's the most dowdy, uh, uh, unglamorous politician we've ever had. I think he's incredibly charismatic, and when he walks in the room, he has something special. Um, He was very honest with me. He said, look, Platon, I am not James Bond. I am not sexy. He said, I've blinded one eye from a rugby injury when I was a student. He said, I hate having my picture taken. He said, I'm going to have to trust you 100%. You're going to have to show me how to be in front of the camera. And because he'd been so honest, it was a beautiful moment. And he relaxed, and he actually looks good. If only he'd have done that in the media. Okay, Nick Clegg. Actually, I know he's having a bit of a rough time at the moment, folks, but on a human level, he was a lovely fella. And uh, I said to him as I did this picture, I want you to think of something that's got nothing to do with politics or business. So um, this look came over his face that was just devastating. And afterwards, I thanked him for the sitting, and I said, um, what were you thinking about? And he said, I was imagining rubbing my baby's foot. And if you look at the face, it really connects. This is Preval, uh, president of Haiti. Now, when I did this picture, it's a small country, people don't talk much about Haiti. I would never have imagined that within a month or two, the whole world will be watching this guy trying to cope with the worst natural disaster we've ever had. Paul Kagame from Rwanda. Cristina Fernandez, president of Argentina, had the most incredible physical charisma. Uh, She just has it. So I had to photograph her outfit, her whole body, just the same with Gaddafi. I know, it's perfect, isn't it? (laughs) I know. So um, Berlusconi, quite a man. And um, I don't know what happened here, folks, because everyone else I meet... It's with a rather formal, stiff handshake. This guy appeared from nowhere on the side and just slid into the frame. He perched his bottom on the stool and gave me that sideways, knowing Hollywood sexy look and then continued sideways out the other side. It was, it was the most elegant maneuver I've ever seen in my life. It was like watching Fred Astaire glide across an Art Deco stage. It was beautiful. So at some point, at this point... This is President Zuma of South Africa. I had by now in two days photographed 88 heads of state and government, and I was exhausted and delirious. 
And it started becoming a joke. Oh, another world leader, come and sit down for goodness sake, make yourself comfortable. And at this point, we started laughing about the whole idea of what a shoot is. And I kept saying, you look beautiful, make love to the camera, come on, Mr. President. And all his advisors who have never heard anyone talk to their president in that way, they all got the giggles because it's so outrageous. So they started laughing, he started laughing, I got the giggles, and we were all in rapturous laughter. So that's what this picture is actually about. This is Kaczynski, the leader of Poland, who tragically was killed in a plane crash a few months after this picture. So he seems so alive in the picture, it's bizarre to think that he's no longer with us. This is Morales of Bolivia, the face of South America. This is Wen Jiaobao, the premier of China. Uh, this was a specially arranged sitting the year later. Um, and they closed down an entire floor at the Waldorf Astoria to do this picture. Again, the Chinese delegation, the, the, the entourage is huge. You feel their power when you come into contact. And uh, I remember saying to him, um, you know, Mr. Uh, Mr., uh, Mr. Bao, I think I called him, um, uh, it's, it's, you look beautiful. You know, I said, you look really beautiful. Has anyone said you look beautiful before? And they were, you know, translating in his ear. And he listened very intently. And then as the shoot finished, he turned round to about 15 of his um, advisors. And he said, Mr. Platon, beautiful. And everyone applauded. <laughs> Just at the moment, I thought, I've conquered China. Um, I got a very... Uh, dark, uh, sinister tug of my arm and one of the delegation whispered in my ear, we want to see the pictures. <laughs> That's politics. They never saw them. All right, Bagbo. Uh, Laurent Bagbo, Ivory Coast. You may have seen him recently as a fallen uh, politician uh, sitting on the end of his bed, hiding in his bunker with his wife, waiting for the opposition forces to physically remove him from power. He clung to power uh, till the last bitter second. This is him in peak power mode as president. And he's like a kid who's dizzy after drinking too much lemonade. He's got a total power high. You look at his, his uh, mouth and it's just this big beaming smile. His eyes are starting to close with ecstasy. He's soaking up all the love in the room. Chavez. Um, I got eight seconds with Hugo Chavez. And um, two frames. One, he blinked. This is the second frame. But he's such an extraordinary character um, that you'd have to be an idiot not to capture it. You don't really have to work too hard. You just need to be alert and quick. Okay, so this is where things turn. Uh, I was invited by Human Rights Watch uh, to humanize their statistics. Human Rights Watch travel the world. They have people working in all the hot spots around the world where there's terrible trouble. And uh, they asked me to go to Burma to photograph all the people who have been uh, um, tortured, abused, um, uh, put in prison, uh, and, for, and, and, and released and it was an incredible experience so these are the three monks that led the Saffron Revolution and I wanted to photograph all these people not as victims but as a new set of cultural heroes for our time so all these little girls live in an orphanage on the border of Burma and Thailand and um, they were in a hospital. They, none of them were well when they were uh, very young. And they were all infected with bad blood and were given HIV. 
and uh, there was no one to look after them in Burma. So uh, they escaped Burma and they were put in an orphanage in, in, on the edge of Thailand. So when I met them, they were terrified of me. Um, and so I needed to find a connection with them. And you can see they're all wearing this sort of face paint. Uh, it's actually a powder that you grind down and mix with water. And it's got special properties in it that cools your skin uh, in the heat. It's about 110 degrees where we did this. Um, so I sat on the floor with the little girls and asked them if they would paint my face. So instead of me being the person of authority, they were now the people of authority because they were showing me how to wear this stuff and, and it created a physical connection between us. And then they started playing with me and giggling. So by the time I was ready to take their picture, we were on the level. And I didn't photograph them as victims. They were empowered people. Uh, victorious against the trauma of what they've been through. This little boy is a child soldier, former child soldier. And uh, I've heard that about 20% of the Burmese army is under the age of 18. And what they do is, in some cases, they send out young kids uh, into areas where there's landmines. Uh, it's a kind of human sweeping of the landmines. So if anyone steps on it, the soldiers, the adult soldiers, know where not to go. So it's a horrific experience for young kids to be uh, recruited. This man was a member of the student union, and because he was, he was imprisoned for six years. And he'd, uh, he'd only just been released and had to flee the country. This man stepped on a landmine, and this is what it did to him. And Burma is the only country, to my knowledge, that uh, still uses landmines as a form of uh, formal policy. And I didn't want to cover up his scars. I wanted to show it to people. If it makes us uncomfortable to look at, imagine what it's like to live, at, live with. These are migrant workers who are forced to build roads for the army. They're like slaves. They're forced to cook, do, you know, just to work for them. They get no money. These two ladies are two of the bravest people I ever met. They're journalists, and they go into Burma with these video cameras and um, they hide the cameras in their handbags or rolled up in a newspaper and wait for a human rights abuse. Perhaps someone's being beaten up by the military police in the, in the town square or something. And they film it. And it's a very risky gig because if they get caught, Lord knows what would happen to them. Um, and then they smuggle the film out of the country and send it out to the rest of the world so we know what's going on. Uh, the taller lady... Uh, arrived on the shoot with, a, I think, a three-year-old child or three-month-old year old child, I can't remember. Uh, and I said to her, you know, as a father myself, I can't understand how you can put yourself through this risk because you have this child to look after. And I said, um, what happens to the child if anything happens to you? I said, you know, how do you feel about your role as a mother doing this job? And she said the most amazing thing. She said... I believe I'm being a great mother by doing this job because I'm trying to make the world a better place for my child to grow up in. And if I have to sacrifice my own personal future relationship with my child, if I get arrested or killed, then I'll do it because I believe the world has to change. So I became obsessed with Aung San Suu Kyi, and she was in prison during this whole time. Suddenly, about six months later after this project, she was released. And the day she was released, I called up my editors at Time magazine and I said, I'm going to Burma. I'm going to do the first portrait, studio portrait of Aung San Suu Kyi. The people of Burma need a proper icon 
of their lady. And uh, I want you to help me, and I want it to go on the cover of Time as our new cultural hero. So they said, well, it's very dangerous. Uh, you, it's, it's completely illegal, what you're suggesting, but we'll help you. So uh, they set me up with a lady called Miss H, who's a secret journalist in Burma. And uh, she advised me on how to uh, deal with the secret police. And I smuggled myself in as um, uh, a tourist with a tourist visa. And I had to wear a disguise, a hat, you know, kind of almost a stick-on moustache thing, cover myself with sunglasses. And after a 36-hour flight, uh, I was advised no time to freshen up in the hotel. Um, you go straight to her offices. No breakfast, no lunch. It was 110 degrees. Um, I went up to the gatekeeper in her offices, which are so run down, I can't tell you. It's a mess there. And he looked at his, uh, his schedule, his diary for her, and he said, well, maybe we can get some space in two weeks. I said, no, man, you don't understand. I've come from New York. This is a big deal. And I'm going to give you the picture. Think Che Guevara. That's what I'm going to do. I need your help today. So he said, maybe you'll be lucky in an hour. So I set up my studio in her office and suddenly she walked in and it was like meeting Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King and the Dalai Lama all mixed up. She has something that I've never seen in my life. She was beautiful and has a dignity that's just show-stopping. So I said to her, um, how, should, um, what, how should we value emotion? I said, is love the most important thing? And she said, absolutely not. She said, love is a passion that goes hot and cold, and you can't sustain it throughout an entire life. We need to find something that is stable, something that lasts forever. So she said, kindness and friendship and loyalty, those are the things that we can sustain. So then I said to her, what did you listen to in terms of music when you were locked up all those years? And she said, well, I listened to Mozart to inspire me. I listened to Bach to calm me down. And then she said, I do quite like Bob Marley. <laughs> so then it was time after the shoot to get out. So I stuffed the film in my underwear and my socks. And with my very loyal and brave assistant, put on our disguises and started to walk out of her offices. Of course, as soon as you leave, all the secret police are camped outside watching anybody who goes into um, the building. And now we were on their radar. So they started following us. So we started walking faster. They started walking faster. Started off with one person. Every time I looked round, it was now two, then three, and then four. And it was getting terrifying. So I ran into a market. Um, they started running after us. I hid in a, in a, in a shop and I watched them all run by. We ran out, ran in the other direction, and then they saw us, and they started chasing us again. Eventually, I jumped into a taxi. By now, I was sweating, panicking. I felt sick with nerves. And uh, this driver of the taxi knew that we were being chased by the police. We were foreigners. We were panicking. It was evident. So he opened his glove compartment, pulled out a little tiny postage stamp picture of Aung San Suu Kyi, and he said, Mother, I will help you. So I said, you want to help me, man? Drive like you've never driven before. <laughs> so we started a nine-hour car chase. They all jumped into two or three cars uh, after us. 
and we drove 80 miles an hour down freeways, through marketplaces. It's like a Jason Bourne film, right? Eventually, it got nighttime, and we lost them. I gave that young, brave taxi driver the biggest tip of his life. I don't think he has to work for another year. Um, he drove me to, straight to the airport. We got a plane uh, to Bangkok, uh, and then eventually, uh, with cash, we bought a series of planes back to New York. Um, I worked on the images with my fantastic team in New York all night, all weekend, handed them in to Time magazine on Monday morning, and it ran on the cover of Time magazine. So we got our icon, and now they're giving this picture out to all the people in Burma on the streets for free, and it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. All right, so uh, civil rights. This is my project on civil rights. I'll be quick here. Um, this is the birth of the civil rights movement. It was my first or second portfolio for uh, The New Yorker. And um, it began with a young boy called Emmett Till. I don't know how much you know about the civil rights movement. I didn't know much. Uh, he was 14 years old, and these are his cousins. And uh, he whistled at a lady in, south, in the south, a white lady. Uh, and because he whistled at her while he was on holiday with these two guys who were his cousins at the time, Emmett was 14, uh, this is Wheeler Parker, he was 12, and Simeon Wright, he was uh, 16. And they're all in a department store, and this white lady walked by, and Emmett whistled or said, hey lady, or something like that. She was so offended, she went back home to her husband, who was in the KKK, and told him that this black kid had whistled at her, and they went looking for the kid. In the middle of the night, they burst open the door of this, these young boy's uh, granddad's house where they were staying and uh, uh, they grabbed the kid and they pulled him out with a flashlight in his face and had guns they took him into the forest they beat him up, they tortured him they did the worst things you can do in, you know, I can't even tell you all the details uh, they killed him they threw his body into a river and tried to weigh it down with a stone but it got loose and his body was found and his mum uh, buried him in an open casket because she wanted the world to see the horrors of what had happened to her baby boy. Uh, that was the beginning of the civil rights movement. So, I said to these two guys who are now elderly gentlemen, what happened to you in your life after this horrendous experience? Uh, Mr. Parker said to me, I lost my confidence. I got scared to look anyone in the eye. So I said, well, don't tell me, show me. And this is his face of pain. His cousin said, I got angry, I got bitter, I didn't trust anyone anymore, I hated everybody. And this is the face of what happened to him. These incredible people are called the Little Rock Nine. They're the first African-American people to go to a mixed school in the South. And the lady in the middle, who's the shortest lady, is called Elizabeth Eckford. And uh, as this is them reunited uh, for the last time because one of them recently died so this is the last picture they were ever together in front of the high school where they first went and there was a riot when they first went to school and they had to be escorted into school by the National Guard for protection so that lady, Elizabeth Eckford she had her head held really high up and, uh, and I said to her excuse me my dear um, would you mind lowering your chin to get in line with everybody else 
And she said to me, young man, don't you dare ask me to lower my chin. She said, I am so proud of what I did and what we did as a group. And she said, whenever I have my picture taken, I hold up my head high with pride. Do you understand? At that point, they all held hands and they all lifted their chins up to her level. It was the most beautiful happening of people power I've ever witnessed in my life. So my sort of mistake created this beautiful sense of pride. Harry Belafonte said to me something his mum always used to say when he was a little boy. Never go to sleep at night knowing there's something you could have done in the day. This is Mr. and Mrs. McNair. Their daughter in 1963, I think, went to Sunday school in this church. And um, the KKK on Saturday night planted a series of bombs underneath the room where all the little girls went to Sunday school and they blew up the building and killed four little girls and one of them was nine-year-old Denise who was this couple's um, daughter and again this is a long time since and they're elderly people now so I brought them out in front of the church which was a very painful thing for them to revisit he's a very proud man but she's very in touch with her emotions and so I asked her to show me the love she had for her family and still has. And that tenderness is what makes this picture important. And suddenly it started snowing. It never snows in the south. So it was like this weird event where it looks gothic. And it created this most tender and powerful picture. Uh, these are robes of the KKK that uh, someone found in their basement. They bought a new house. And as they were gutting out the basement, they found this box, and in the box were all the robes. So whoever owned the house before was a member of the KKK. This is Malcolm X's daughters, and I asked them to unite and come back together as a family. And they hadn't really been together in a long time uh, to show a, a, a tribute to their father. These are Malcolm X, uh, sorry, um, Martin Luther King's closest allies. And uh, it's underneath the church uh, where he used to preach. And the man who's sitting down is the, the great warrior called Fred Shuttlesworth, who's crazy. I mean, he, he was blown up five times, beaten up many times. He was so brave. And recently, he had had a devastating stroke, and he hadn't been out of his house in two years. So um, when he heard that I was doing this civil rights tribute, um, he insisted on being a part of it. And he asked his family to help him fly across America, catching planes, cars, trains. Um, they dressed him up in a suit that he hadn't worn since the stroke. And all the other guys huddled around his wheelchair, uh, and they all started to pray. And I found myself witnessing the most beautiful moment of the civil rights era. So, Muhammad Ali. He's been robbed of the two things that made him famous uh, he's certainly his power in, in strength and his power of speech because of Parkinson's disease. So I was terrified. How am I going to show the great Muhammad Ali without those two things? Actually, what's left is the most important thing, and that's his spirit and strength of character. So that's what I photographed. Right, the last few pictures. I did this document of honoring the everyday men and women who fight for their country in America. So it's not political. It was just honoring their service of very brave people. Uh, this little boy's dad is in the Marines, so you can tell what he's going to do 
Uh, he's six years old. This is in California. Uh, the Pentagon own about 100 miles uh, of desert. And in the middle of the desert, they have built Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's called the Suck. Uh, this street is called Trauma Lane. And the US soldiers and Marines are sent to this place for two weeks just before they're deployed for the last piece of training. And they're ambushed. Um, they employ hundreds, if not thousands, of role players from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, to act out what the war conditions are going to be. So there are insurgent actors. There are uh, people who act out injuries. This guy over here, you can see on the floor, uh, they blew up a Humvee as the soldiers march into town and the soldiers have to deal with the panic and the, the anarchy of the situation. This guy over here, he's, his legs have been blown off and they employ Hollywood um, makeup artists to put blood everywhere so that soldiers get um, used to seeing these horrific sights and don't panic when the reality happens. This is him. So he's an amputee role player. And he's covered with blood, fake blood, uh, three times a day uh, and is part of the ambush every time the soldiers come into town. This is California, folks. This is uh, first day of uh, the, um, setting sail. And this sailor's never done this before. He doesn't know where he's going and he doesn't know how long he's going for. All right, so this is quite a powerful picture. Um, it's the moment of transference of power. This uh, young man came back and lost both his legs stepping on an a, a IED or something in, in Iraq. And uh, this is his wife. And I went to the army hospital, Walter Reed Hospital, to photograph lots of people who have been injured. And everything has changed. He's now falling back into the warmth of his wife's embrace. And he's giving up that kind of fight and she is now taking over and she is looking at me and through me she's looking at you saying he's mine I've got him back and you can't hurt him anymore and now I'm in control it's a beautiful moment this is El Shabar Khan this is probably the most important picture I've ever taken and I ever will take so I went to the cemetery <coughs> where um, families grieve for their fallen uh, heroes. It's an army cemetery. And um, I saw her there in a very quiet moment of grief. She's a Muslim. And her son was a Muslim. And he died in the American army fighting in Iraq. Um, she would sit there every day and read the Quran to him. And she kind of believes, as some of us do when we lose someone, you choose an object to represent the person you've lost. So she thinks of the gravestone as her son. So I said to her, would you uh, allow me to photograph you uh, at the grave? So she very uh, uh, sweetly agreed. And she decided to embrace the gravestone as if she's cuddling her son. I took this picture. Uh, and after this was published in the New Yorker, uh, about two weeks before the Obama election, things were still looking quite tight. And you, you heard of uh, General Colin Powell? So he went on the news. He's a Republican. He went on the news and made a historic announcement in America saying that he's switching sides. 
He's no longer endorsing John McCain and the Republicans. He's turning his energies to Obama. Um, the news reader said, what made you change your mind? Uh, he said, a photograph made me change my mind. And he started to describe this picture. He said, I've been to many John McCain rallies and I've heard some very disturbing chanting going on. He said, I hear people shouting, Obama is a Muslim. Obama is a Muslim. He said, firstly, he's not a Muslim. He's a Christian. But what if he was a Muslim? What's wrong with being a Muslim? We're supposed to live in a free world where we should be able to be allowed to be whoever we want to be. He said, I'm changing sides because I think Obama is more inclusive. And he said, in this picture, I saw a woman who is a Muslim woman whose son died fighting in America, and it does not get more American than that. So they say that this picture was one of the most influential pictures in the election and helped swing the power. Okay. This is the moment of homecoming. Now, when someone like a Marine comes home after nine months, they are built like rock. Okay? They're the toughest people you'll ever meet. I was waiting with this girl, who is his fiancée, uh, he asked her to marry him, and then the next day he was deployed for nine months, so they hadn't seen each other in all that time. And I was waiting with her and her family for him to return. And this is the moment. The car pulls in, he jumps out the car, dumps his bag literally on the floor, and she charges at him like a team of wild horses and practically knocks him over with the force of love. And I had to tilt my camera just to get it in the shot. I wasn't expecting everything to bend. This is Jessica Gray. Her husband died in Iraq. She's got a young daughter, maybe two or three years old. And Jessica was the most beautiful person. I went to her house to do it. And uh, she knew that although I'm a stranger, it's an event. And she knew I'm coming to photograph her as a widow. So she said to me, you know I want to do something, she said. They, they sent home all his clothes from the army in a box. And she said, I have never had the courage to open the box, but perhaps today I'm strong enough. So she wanted to wear his T-shirt in the picture. So together we opened up the trunk, and of course she burst into tears. And I said to her, I'm so sorry that you feel this pain. And she said, you don't understand. She said, I'm upset because they washed the clothes and they took his smell away. And these are the moments of grief that we all feel. We all know it. It's not the obvious loud moments. It's those quiet moments when you've been robbed of perhaps a sensation that you cling to. So she put on his T-shirt and we did the picture. And I said to her, is there a word of wisdom you could give me about dealing with loss or your life story? And she said, oh yeah. She said, um, nothing tastes as good as thin feels. So I said, that's bizarre. I said, what does that mean? I said, that's like out of a you know, tacky diet plan. She said, it is. So I said, well, I don't understand. She said, look, I'm a young woman. I'm a widow, but I don't want to be a widow all my life. She said, I've got a young daughter. I have to find a new father for my daughter, and I want to find a new man. And she said, so I'm going to make myself beautiful. I'm, my husband wouldn't have wanted me to suffer lonely all my life. So she said, I will not eat that cake. I will not drink that Coke. Nothing tastes as good as thin feels. So this is the last picture. 
because I'm running late and they're going to get angry with me at the LSE. Um, Dustin Hoffman, I was told, hates having his picture taken. All right? I was sent to LA to do this. He walked in the room, flanked by two Amazonian publicist women who looked like they were ready for war. They probably work out nine hours a day and haven't had a shag in 15 years. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman looks mean. So I said to him, Mr. Hoffman, it's great to meet you, but uh, I've got a message for you. So he said, what? So I said, my mum adores you. I said, she's followed your career since the graduate. She thinks you're the greatest actor of your generation. She thinks you're kind of cute too. He looked at me and he said, where does she live? <laughs> I said, she lives in London. He said, can we call her? So I looked at my watch. I said, she's probably getting ready for bed right now. She'll have her hair in rollers. She'll be in a dressing gown. You know, he said, let's call her. So me, Dustin Hoffman, the two publicist bitches <laughs> gathered round the phone and I dialed my mum's number. She picked up the phone. I said, mum, I'm glad I caught you because I've got someone who wants to say hello. So I passed over the phone and he said, hello, my dear. I want you to know you have a secret American admirer. And next time I'm in London town, I'm taking you to the Ritz for tea. So she said, who am I talking to, please? He said, this is Dustin Hoffman. And she freaked out. <laughs> so we finished the shoot. He turned out to be the most beautiful person you can imagine. And you can see it in his eyes. He's cheeky. The graduate still lives. Uh, the publicist women became lovely human beings. They weren't that bad. Um, at the end of the shoot, I said, I've got a level with you, mate. I need to tell you something very important. I said, you don't know this, but my dad died one month ago. And I said, tomorrow is my mum's birthday. And it's the first birthday she's been without my dad in 40 years. I said, it's going to be a very painful day for her, and you don't realize it, but you've distracted her in the most beautiful way. She's never talked to a movie star like you before, and I think she's going to wake up tomorrow on her birthday feeling so excited about life. So I said, as a son and as a man, thank you. So without me knowing, we, we said goodbye. He got his limo back to his home in the Hollywood Hills. He called my agent in New York, and he secretly got my mom's address in London. The next morning at 8 o'clock, there was a knock, knock at the door. She put on a dressing gown and went to the door, and she was presented with 200 white roses with a card which said, uh, Happy birthday from your secret American admirer. That's people power, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much. Um, if anybody wants to nip out and catch a bus or catch a train, do so now. But if, if it would be very cheeky, we're going to take an extra five minutes or so, very, very quickly, to take a few questions. I think, uh, but you have to be. Please be really brief. So it's a, a. It's just like when he speaks to these guys, just one sexy sentence. All right, and we'll take a few of them, uh, uh, and then get Platten to come back. All right. 
Right, let's start over here, very quickly. How, how did you go from St. Martin's to New York? Very briefly, you. Hold, hold that one. Hold, hold that, that one. one. Yeah. When you take a picture, do you take, you wait for the moment and take the picture, or do you take lots and lots of Well, sometimes you have to make the moment. Uh, in my game, you often do. Um, you have to stimulate the moment to happen. So, uh, that, you know, it's waiting and waiting, you might run out of time. And often I'm given such little time and I'm given such little room to manoeuvre. There's normally about 10 or 15 people watching every move I make. They're already timing me. In fact, many of the pictures I've taken is while someone's actually pulling my arm, saying, enough, we've got to go, that's it. So, I, I mean, I remember with Gaddafi, I refused to let him go. I said, I'm not done yet, all right? I need another second. And so it gave me the chance to get the three-quarter shot. And if I hadn't have been strong like that, and perhaps his defiance is a little shock that I'm refusing to budge. So sometimes you've just got to make the moment. So let's take the other one. The, on the St. Martin's, um, how did you get from St. Martin's to New York? I'm quite interested in what was there before that may have taken you sort of to St. Martin's and into photography. As, was it always in your life? or No, I mean... Um, Something happened at St. Martin's by accident. I was given a camera and I photographed a friend in the college canteen. And I'd never done it before, really, uh, uh, but it's an event. It's a happening. It's a very special thing when you photograph someone. Uh, you're, you're, in a way, curing society's amnesia by recording someone's existence. So it was an incredible revelation. And I am so crap at most things. I still have not sent or received an email and my uh, studio manager's here, Siobhan, from New York, to, to guarantee that's the truth. Um, I'm completely dyslexic. I can't organise my way out of a paper bag. But something makes sense to me when I'm confronted with a person. It doesn't matter whether it's a world leader or whether it's uh, one of the kids in Burma. Um, it's just as challenging at every stage, and you have to treat everyone with um, complete respect. And you also have to show your vulnerabilities. And I think that's really important that photographers or all of us, whenever we're confronted with someone who's kind of influential, we want to impress them. Uh, I, actually, it's the worst thing you can do. Uh, I think you show much more strength of character and power if you're confident enough to reveal your weaknesses. And I've spent 20 years actually revealing my weaknesses to the most powerful people on the planet. And it allows them to reveal their weaknesses back. Excellent. Other questions? Uh, there's one at the very back there. Have we just got the one? Yeah, take the microphone. Has anybody who sat for you taken a picture of you? Yes, Annie Leibovitz. Um, was it any good? I never saw it. She never showed it to me. Oh, really? She owes me that one. But we did do a picture where I was photographing her and she photographed me. Excellent. And what are, what are, what are your um, home snaps like? Do you like anyone else? Yeah. You know, it's no no special. But I am now getting my kids into the studio, and at three years old, they know exactly what to do. It's <laughs> By the time they're fifteen, they're going to be a knockout. Fantastic. Please. Can you tell us three people or groups that you'd most like to photograph next, or that Excellent. you'd aspire to photograph next? I want to do the Queen, and I've, I'm trying to make that one happen right now. Uh, I still have not got Paul McCartney, and I'm, uh, I really would love to get Macca, just because I've talked about him to most of the world leaders, so it's a, it's a bizarre experience. 
Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is um, I never know what I'm in for. I mean, I just got back uh, from Egypt and I photographed the revolution in Tahrir Square. And uh, that was the most humbling experience of my life because I was photographing not powerful politicians but everyday people like you all, like me, uh, who took their country into their own hands and literally stood up against massive oppression. And I, I, I experienced bravery and inspiration uh, that uh, we can all uh, learn from. And I think that uh, I, I blame myself. I've been part of a business that's been promoting the idea of perfection to you all in a long, for a long time. And we've made everybody feel slightly inadequate. You know, when you look at pictures of David Beckham, I mean, you feel inadequate. When you look at pictures of, you know, a, a model, it makes all women feel that they're not perfect. The reality is they are perfect. We're all perfect. We're all beautiful people. And it's part of a kind of media conspiracy to create inadequacy in you. So you buy the right cream, you buy the right soap, you buy the right car, and all that mother jazz. So now I think it's, turn, it's time to turn things upside down and create a new set of cultural heroes who we are inspired by, not intimidated by. People who show us how to be better, how to take things into our own hands and not wait for the masses to start a revolution, but start our own revolutions, even within our home, about changing your own personal life for the better. So, I, I, I mean, you could call me naive and you could call me op, you know, a silly optimist, and, and, and maybe I am. But I do believe in the human condition, and I, I, as um, Harry Belafonte said, you should never go to bed now at night knowing there's something you could have done in the day. Who does have the most uh, impressive first impression, and are there differences between first impression and reality? Can you say that again? Who had the best first impression? Who had the best first impression? Yeah. Is there a difference between that first impression and, and the reality, as it were? Uh, the, the handshake is everything, right? Uh, there's, um, you know, I, I'm not an academic, okay? I mean, I've learned, I'm a street hustler. I, I've learned on the job. But the handshake is everything. And everybody has a different handshake. And I'll give you two examples. Clinton and Obama. All right. When Clinton shakes your hand, he doesn't just shake it. He grabs it very gently and with his other hand grabs your elbow and pulls you in. All right? You are seduced within seconds. And that's Clinton. Obama has a different handshake, but it's just as beautiful. He starts the motion of his hand being open way before you get close to him. So you can see it coming at you. And he knows that whenever you meet someone who's very powerful, you're going to be nervous, intimidated. You're going to lose your cool. And he's helping you by saying, here it comes. Don't get it wrong. It's easy. <laughs> right? you, slow motion, sweetheart. Put your hand in mine gently. So by the time you reach out, you saw it come in. It wasn't awkward. It wasn't jarred. It wasn't like, oh, no, I got the handshake wrong. I, you know. It wasn't that. It's beautiful. So both men reveal their personality, the seduction, and then the sort of compassion for the human condition. So it's first impressions count. At the back, um, there's a couple there. Yeah, go on. Hi there. Uh, two questions, very quick. Um, you, you mentioned running away with some film. Do you ever shoot digitally? Second question, um, given that you have to set up really quick for shoots, 
are you uh, making accommodation for reflection for people wearing spectacles? <laughs> All right, well, I don't shoot digital, uh, but it's irrelevant, really, what I shoot. I mean, I think... I, I'm not really a photographer. I, I think of myself as someone, as I said, curing society's amnesia. I mean, photography for me is 2% of what I do. Uh, the rest is all people skills and psychology. Um, I've got no time to think about lighting or anything. It's in my head. I live it and breathe it, and so do my team. Uh, we're like a machine when we're working. Uh, uh, so all our attention goes into the person, the, the, the hustle. You know, as I said, the people skills, the handshake, uh, are they uptight, are they insecure? What buttons am I going to have to push to stimulate the moment to capture it on film? Um, with regard to spectacles, it's a, it's a constant issue. So there are millions of tricks, uh, but it depends on the spectacle uh, uh, curve. And if someone's particularly bad sighted, it's a nightmare because the curve's greater. No matter where I put the light, you're going to see it. So uh, sometimes you, know, you ask them to dip their head down, sometimes you move the light up. I mean, all my assistants know to watch for that. And uh, you know, so the person will never know what's going on, that, that all you can see is just two reflections of the light. Um, but that's not their issue to know. Behind the scenes, we're covering up so many things. Take the very last question from the top, please. Yeah, thanks. Uh, one small no, uh, very small question. Have you ever rejected our work for political reasons? Say that again, I'm sorry. Have you ever sorry. rejected work for political reasons? Um, not yet. Uh, I mean, I, I believe it's very dangerous uh, to judge people politically. Uh, I, I, um, I mean, I photograph some of the most dangerous people on the planet, right? Um, and some people have accused me of uh, glamorizing them and that I shouldn't do it. But uh, I believe uh, I, I'm taking a, an honest moment. It's not the whole truth, it's a true moment. And uh, I don't try to make someone look bad in a picture, but I don't try to make someone look good in a picture. Uh, it's, that's propaganda either way. I try to be honest, and I allow my subject's legacy to, to create uh, our own personal judgments. I, don't, I think it's very dangerous to start making those judgments, even when it's clear I'm photographing perhaps a villain. Um, and I think it's important that they are photographed. You know, I mean, there are pictures of Hitler. Um, and I think it's important that there are pictures of Hitler. We need to understand who Hitler was. And if we just deny it, that it ever happened, then we're denying the chance. I mean, it could happen again if we haven't analysed it. Ahmadinejad, some people said, but the warmth in his eyes, you make him look too nice. I didn't make him look anything, it was there. Um, but I actually think the warmth in his eyes makes him more sinister. Because if he's capable of threatening global security and uh, you know, abusing certain human rights, and he's also capable of showing charisma and warmth as a human, then I think that makes him much more sinister uh, than a cartoon of a two-dimensional dictator. And it, it, with, with Putin, it was the same. Half the people in Russia criticized it because, the, the, for instance, the media who have been pushed down and their freedoms have been quelled uh, in Russia under Putin's reign, uh, they criticized me for glamorizing him. But all his supporters, many of them criticized me for making him look like a Cold War relic. So it's the same picture. 
uh, your political sides may change, but the picture stays the same. And, you, and as we saw with George Bush doing the bunny song, I mean, everyone can read something different into it. But I do think it's important that I give society pictures to make people talk. And if I raise certain issues and create a debate about someone or something, then that's a huge victory for me. You know, but it's not my job to sort of uh, try to inform that debate or swing it one way or another. I hope that, as with Colin Powell, they'll be inspired uh, to, and stimulate their mind, uh, hopefully, in the right direction. Excellent. Listen, <clears throat> we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I'm going to ask you guys a favour, which is, um, Platten's going to go outside and do book signing. So if you let us exit first, and so he can uh, get into position to sign books. I really want to get this guy back to show us his Egyptian photos when they're ready. But most of all, I want to thank you all for coming and Platten for a fantastic evening. Uh,